Thank you, Dale, for introducing us to John the Baptist this morning. You know, Dale, you're a numbers person. Many of you here are numbers people. Um, I'm not a numbers guy. I'm more of a word guy. Math class was, was bad for me. I much prefer English class. That's why God made me a pastor and not an accountant. That's a very good thing. But even as a pastor... There's certain numbers that you can't ignore. The Bible has numbers that you need to pay attention to. There's some math that comes in. I'm not talking about the numerology where people take numbers and multiply and divide in funny ways and say, now I know when Jesus is coming back. No, that, don't do fancy math like that. But there's numbers that carry significance. And you have to pay attention. Like the number three, right, in the Bible, the, the Trinity usually represents God. The number seven the number of completion and perfection in the Hebrew culture. So when seven shows up, that means there's a wholeness to it, right? The number 12, it's not a coincidence that there were 12 tribes and then 12 disciples and usually talking about the church or the community, the people of God. I think one of the numbers that shows up again and again and again that you need to pay attention to is the number 40. And 40 in Scripture often often comes in terms of time, a length of time, right? Let me give you some examples. During the flood, remember Noah and the, and the ark, it rained for 40 days and for 40 nights. Moses, when he went up on top of the mountain to get the, the Ten Commandments from God, he was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites wandering the desert happened to be there for 40 years. When Joshua then sent the spies into the promised land to go and check it out, and they found out it was a land full of milk and honey, right? You know how long they were in that land spying? Forty days. Goliath, the giant Goliath taunting David and Israel, he taunted them for 40 days, the Bible tells us. The prophet Ezekiel, the one who did kind of weird things when God asked him to, one of the things he did was he laid on his right side for 40 days days. We just finished going through the book of Jonah, if you've been here the three weeks previous. Do you remember when Jonah went to Nineveh, preached his one-day eight-word sermon? Remember how long he gave them to repent before God was going to destroy them? I bet you can guess. Forty days, right? Moses and Elijah, both we see in Scripture, fasting for 40 days. The, the three big kings of Israel, Saul, David, Solomon, were told that they all reigned for 40 years. Right? The number 40 shows up again and again, telling us, telling us that we're talking about in, in that context a significant, important segment of time, a fullness of time. Right? 40 is a whole generation. 40 is a whole era. 40 years is a full season. And 40 days, if, you're, if, if you follow the math not too closely, 40 days is just about a tithe of a year, isn't it? 10% of your year is 40 days. That's what makes the 40-day season that we just stepped into, the season of Lent, so significant in our lives every year. This is our tithe of the year. Our tithe when we are invited in this segment of time, 
We're invited, we're encouraged, we're challenged to focus more intently on the things of God in our lives. To step back from all of our busyness, to step back from our regular routines, and to have a renewed focus on our spiritual lives in this season. And when we're serious about it, and I guess a lot of us aren't serious about Lent, but if we are serious about this season, it's a time when we ask ourselves some profound questions. I think the heart of the questions we ask is this. What does it mean for me to be in relationship with God? Think about that. What does it mean for you to be in relationship with God? It's a pretty profound question. Pretty big foundational kind of question. Let me break it down maybe into two simpler questions to help you think it through. First of all, ask yourself this. Who am I becoming? Look at your life. Who are you becoming? What's the trajectory of your life? Are you moving closer to God or further away from God as you live out your life day by day? Are you looking more like Jesus or less like Jesus day by day and moment by moment? Are you making choices and decisions that, that align you with his purposes or, or move you to the side of his purposes. Ask yourself and dare to answer the question, who are you becoming? And the second question that you need to follow up with is who is God asking me to become? Who is God asking me to become? Those two sub-questions are life-shaping, maybe life-changing kinds of questions. They're questions that Jesus himself took 40 days to ask. Right? Remember at the very start of Jesus' ministry, he goes off alone into the desert, into the wilderness, and it, we're told that he fasts there all by himself for 40 days. And in that time, you know, we don't, we don't get the details of, of the words and the thoughts and the conversations he had with God, but he must have been having conversations of God with, about what it means for him to be Jesus. Who was he becoming, and who did God want him to become? Because when he stepped out of that wilderness after 40 days, that's when everything changed, right? Now his mind was set on the cross, and his steps were set forward towards Jerusalem. And, and he knew the cross was coming, and he knew the tomb was coming, and he knew the resurrection was coming, and he went out with a new foundation to his life, a new purpose and direction clearly laid out. And nothing was going to stop him, even if that direction meant a cross and a tomb. Forty days. Right? Lent, this 40-day season that you and I are in right now, is our invitation to intentionally have our honest conversation with God. Tradition is that you give something up for Lent, and I would guess a whole bunch of us here have given something up for Lent. Good for you. I looked up online this past week, what were the top five things people gave up for Lent last, last year? Top five things. First of all, number one, social networking. Two, Twitter. Three, alcohol. Four, chocolate. I thought that'd be much higher on the list, but four was chocolate. And number five was swearing. You gave up swearing for Lent. Maybe 40 days isn't long enough for that one. I don't know. I don't know. Good for you if you've chosen to give something up for Lent. 
But I hope that it's more than just a convenient tool for you to temporarily give you better discipline in your life. I hope it's more than that. Because I don't think Jesus fasted in the desert for 40 days because he could stand to lose an extra 15 pounds and he just didn't have the discipline to do it on his own. That's not the point. Jesus wasn't interested in in self-improvement in these 40 days. He was intent on establishing or reestablishing or identifying the very foundational purpose for his life. He was intent on setting a foundation that would change and shape everything for him going forward. So yes, maybe if you made a commitment to give something up for lunch, maybe it would be good for you to spend less time on your phone. Maybe it would be good for you to eat less chocolate and drink less alcohol. And yes, it would be good for you to stop swearing for longer than 40 days. But know that that isn't the point of Lent. Jesus fasted to help him focus. Every time he was hungry, he felt those pains. He, he thought again, who am I and who am I becoming? Every time you want to pick up that phone, every time you feel hungry, every time you want that chocolate, every time you feel like swearing, mm, who am I and who am I becoming? That foundation shaped Jesus' life. It shaped all the conversations he had from then on out with the people on this journey he was on towards the cross in the tomb. And for Lent, here together, we're going to listen in on some of those conversations as we journey through Lent towards Easter over the next month and a half. And hopefully as we hear the honest conversations that Jesus had with other people and they had with him, it will cultivate in you and in me the curse have our own honest conversations with God about who we are and who we are truly becoming and who God wants us to become. So this morning we met John the Baptist. John the Baptist, if you've read about him at all, if you know his story briefly in Scripture, he's not someone who, who had a hard time telling the truth, being honest. John spoke truth no matter who it might offend, Right? He dared to ask the core foundational questions about life and living that so many of us try to avoid, right? His conversations are some of the first conversations that, the first interchanges that people have with Jesus. So turn with me, take out your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 3, page 833 in the Bibles there in front of you. Luke chapter 3, if you read the whole chapter, I encourage you to do that this this week or maybe this afternoon, you'll get a better picture of who John is. If you read the whole chapter, you'll hear John speaking truth boldly, courageously, right? He's out at the, at the Jordan River, out in the wilderness, and people come to hear him, and, and they don't come to hear him because he's so kind to them, because he tells them everything's okay. You're going to hear John, John calling these people brood of vipers, He tells them, God's ready to chop you down. He's got the axe at the root, and you're going to be toppled. He demands that they change their lives, right? And they say, how do you want us to change our lives? He says, you need to start acting justly towards the poor. You need to be generous towards the poor. You need to stop cheating people at work. You need to stop taking advantage of others for your own gain. You need to start being content with what you have instead of always wanting more. He speaks truth. And then starting at verse 15, he speaks truth about Jesus. Listen to what he says. 
verses 15 through 18 of Luke chapter 3. So as the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather up the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John extorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them, proclaimed the gospel, proclaimed Jesus to them. And the next picture we get to see is is John baptizing Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit, God's own voice saying, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. What we see is John being really one of the very first ones to boldly believe. He boldly believes that Jesus is the Messiah. He recognizes Jesus for who he is before almost everybody else does. And so as Jesus walks up with everybody gathered around, he introduces Jesus with confidence, with boldness, with faith. You know, it's in John's gospel where where we hear John the Baptist say, look, that's the Lamb of God. He's the one who's come to take away the sin of the world. That's the one. He's the Messiah. Right? It's It's a picture of a powerful and bold man of faith. But that's not the last picture that we see of John. It's probably not even the most profound glimpse of John that we get. You see, when Jesus walked out of the wilderness, his ministry begins to increase, right? Jesus gets a a bigger following, a bigger crowd, more attention, and John's ministry begins to decrease. And John knew that would happen. He predicted that. What he didn't know would happen is is that his boldness would get him on Herod's bad side. And people who got on King Herod's bad side end up in prison, end up in jail. And that's where John finds himself in chapter 7. Turn over a couple pages to chapter 7. Because here we meet him again. This time he's not boldly speaking by the riverside. He's wasting away in his prison cell. And he's sitting there and he's wondering what it means for him to be in relationship with God now. Wondering who he's becoming now that he's sitting in a jail cell. Wondering who it is that God's asking him to become. Listen to his questions, starting at verse 18 of Luke 7. John's disciples told him all these things, the things that Jesus had been doing in previous chapters. Calling two of them, John sent them to the Lord to ask... Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, 
Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Well, that's a different picture of John now, isn't it? John, who just four chapters ago was one who boldly believed, is now one who deeply doubted. Right? Wasting away there in prison, knowing he's probably going to die there. Disappointed with how things had turned out in his life. John has a lot of time to think about what he's dying for. To ask the really important questions of life. Who am I becoming? Who does God want me to become? When you ask that question and you begin to get the impression that the answer is, is dead? It's not really what you're looking for. It's not what, an answer that you eagerly embrace. And John's boldness and that confidence is shaken. His faith, his very faith is shaken. There's enough boldness and confidence left, though, that he dares to ask the most important question of Jesus. Are you the one who is to come? Or was I wrong? And should we expect someone else? Are you the one? Here I am, Jesus. I went before you. I boldly proclaimed that you're the one. And now I'm sitting in this miserable jail cell thinking that God might be asking me to die for you. So I'd really like to make sure I get this right. Because I'm not sure anymore. If God is asking me to die, if that's who I'm to become, tell me that you're the one. We don't like that picture of doubt, do we? In some ways, doubt makes us uncomfortable. I think that's because we equate doubt with weakness. After all, we see doubt as the opposite of faith, right? When, when one goes down, the other goes up like they're on a string, right? So, so the more faith I have, the less doubt I will have. So you want to have more faith. And the more, the more doubt I have, it must mean that my faith is less and weaker. So, so, of course, doubt is bad. Of course, this wondering that John is doing is wrong. And, and asking these kind of questions of Jesus can't be right. The second picture here of John sitting in jail filled with doubt is worse than the John that we see at the, at the riverside who's bold and courageous. But what if, what if our assumptions and understandings are, are wrong? Maybe the John that we hear asking Jesus these profound foundational questions from the misery of his jail cell is farther along in the journey of faith than the bold John by the riverside. Maybe we have a wrong understanding of this relationship between faith and doubt between asking questions and proclaiming answers. Because maybe, maybe faith and doubt are opposites on this continuum, on this scale. What if, the, what if the questions that come to our minds and in our hearts, what if those questions prodded by doubt actually serve to deepen our faith? I think deep faith actually needs doubt 
Because I don't think faith and doubt are opposites. I don't think doubt is the opposite of faith. You know what the opposite of faith is? The opposite of faith is fact. Think about it. If there's a fact, you need no faith to believe it. You need no faith to say it's true. Let me give you a simple example. I need zero faith to believe that this stool exists. There it is. I can see it. I can touch it. That's fact. No faith. Now, for me to sit down on this stool, I believe this stool has been in this building longer than I've been in this building. Stools get weak over time. There's a chance that when I sit down on that stool, it could collapse. There's a little bit of doubt here before I sit down. You know what I need to sit on this stool? I need a little bit of faith. A little bit of faith that this isn't the time when this stool is going to collapse. And I had nightmares that it actually would have been the time. <laughs> I need a little bit of faith to sit down. Because there's a little bit of doubt. And when my doubts grow higher, when my doubts get stronger... When my wonderings come clearer, I think those are the times when my faith is forced to get stronger, to go higher, to be clearer in the face of those wonderings and doubts. So could it be that as my doubts, my willingness to ask questions, my willingness to address my doubts goes up, my faith goes up? as well. I love the way, again, my, one of my favorite authors, Frederick Beekner, puts it. He says, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. I love that picture. It's your doubts that make your faith go and grow and move. And I think it was John's boldness and courage that made it possible now for him to ask the most important and the most profound and the most necessary questions about Jesus and about himself. Are you truly the one, Jesus? His boldness and courage and his faith is what made it possible for him to explore his doubts and then to live out the answers that he discovered. His questions help him find the answer, right? So Jesus replies to him and said, look around. The blind are seen again. The, the deaf are hearing. The lame are walking. Good news is being preached to the poor. And you know what? Dead are being raised to life. What do you think? Am I the one? And John says, yeah, you're the one. Yes, you are. He hears the yes. And, and that answer shapes the rest of his life, as brief as it might be. It shapes the foundation of who he is becoming because now he, he can sit there in prison. If God's asking him to be in prison for Jesus, he's worth being in prison for. And if God's asking him to die for Jesus, he's worth dying for. His faith grew because he asked the question, because he wondered aloud. Lent is a time when you and I are invited to ask profound questions with God, the most profound questions, to enter into conversation with him, conversations that maybe we're too busy or too distracted to have at other times in our lives. Slow down. Take a break. 
quiet down long enough in these 40 days to have a conversation with God. To dare to accept or maybe even embrace your, your wonderings, maybe even your doubts. To go to God and, and ask him, what does it mean for you to be Jesus? And what does it mean for me to be me? In relationship with you. Ask, who are you, God, and who am I? And what does that mean for the details of my life? So if, you, if you're giving something up for Lent, awesome. I'm glad you are. Good for you. And I hope you make it to the end. That's a, that's a big discipline to do. But more than that, I hope your sacrifice reminds you every single day, multiple times, to ask yourself, every time you feel hunger, every time you want to pick up your phone, every time you want that bit of chocolate, yes, that's my reminder. Who am I? And who is God asking me to become? Maybe there's some other questions you want to ask. Let me give you a few. Let me give you six questions. If you want to write them down quickly, you're going to have to write fast, because I'm going to give them to you fast. Some of the, maybe one of them will, will pique your interest to help you process this, to ask profound questions with God. What if sometime in this 40 days you asked, if I had to bet everything I have on whether there's a God or whether there isn't, which side would get my money and why? That would be a fascinating answer, especially the why part. Maybe ask, when you look at your face in the mirror, what do you see in it that you most like? And what do you see in it that you most deplore? Talk about that with God. If you had only one last message to leave to a handful of people who are most important to you, what would it be in 25 words or less? Can you write that? That's getting down, if you do it with God, that's getting down to the foundational stuff of life. Of all the things you've done in your life, which one would you most like to undo? And which one makes you the happiest? Two more. If, is there any person or cause in this world that if circumstances called for it, you'd be willing to die for? I wonder if they know it. Finally, if this were the last day of your life, what would you do with it? Those are the kinds of questions when you bring them before God to help you Figure out, who am I becoming? And who does God want me to become? Those, those are the kind of questions that we need to be asking as we come to this table here this morning. Right? We come, we come to this table to communicate at the start of Lent every time. We come to this table not because we have all the right answers. Okay? Know that. You don't come to this table because you have zero doubts and zero questions. If that was the requirement for coming to this table, then I can't come, and you can't come. John the Baptist wouldn't be able to come. He's filled with doubts. They're in the Scripture. No. You come to this table. You come to this table knowing that you need to ask Jesus the right questions. You're asking the right questions, and you're bringing those right questions to the right place. You're looking for answers in the right place.
in the God who made you and loves you, in his son who died for you and bought you back at a price. And this table helps us find those answers. Because here at this table, this bread and this juice, Jesus points us towards himself where we remember the cross where he died and we remember the tomb that is now empty and we remember the throne that he's sitting on right now. He, he points our minds and our hearts back towards him. And it's here at this table that the Holy Spirit nourishes our brokenness, our broken souls with grace, nourishes our, our broken minds with assurance, nourishes our turmoil by giving us peace and calm. He nourishes us by giving us deep, deep love of the Father at this table. And it's here, gathered together around this table, that we continue to discover who we are and who we're becoming because of Jesus Christ. So as we begin this profound season of Lent with its questions and its conversations, be aware. The scripture shows us that when you're honest with God, a season can change you for a lifetime. Are you open to that? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for inviting us to come into your presence, not because we have it all figured out, but because in your presence is where we will find the answers that we need to figure it out. Thank you that you welcome us with our doubts and you welcome us with our questions. And you show us yourself. Thank you for the big, big dreams you have for us. Of who you want us to become. And often our dreams for this life are so small. Help us to dare to come to you in this season. And see who you're asking us to be. To see what you're asking us to do. To see the grand adventure of faith that you are laying out before us. And to embrace who you want us to become. Now we come to this table. Because we want to see you more clearly. Show us who we are in relationship with you. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.